Still up okay. in Maine? Yeah, I'm still in Maine. It's uh, it's really beautiful here, honestly. It's uh, just an incredible experience being in nature. I, I, Of course, I recommend it to everybody, you know, going out into the world and getting away from the hustle and bustle of the city. And Victor, you know that better than anybody, you know? Yeah. You, you're a photographer and you do incredible things out in nature and uh, thoroughly enjoy your stuff, honestly. Thanks. Yeah. And Baruch Hashem, I, I mean, I went to Acadia a couple times. Um, but now we moved to a, a house a little bit closer uh, to New York, actually more f- further south. Um, just a better house with a campfire and a hot tub. So, you okay. know, more intimate. So it's going to be a lot of fun. All awesome. right. Yeah. Which, heist so, did, which heist did you do in Acadia? I don't know the name of it. We did the one where you could kind of see the most things in the shortest amount of time. Okay. I don't know. I don't know exactly what the name of it was. I wish I, I, I got to go back there, honestly, before I leave. Yeah. I need to make sure. Um, let's see. Okay. All right. So welcome, everybody, to Chapter 10 of Sefer Kohelet. Reaching the end here almost. It's it's incredible. We got till Chapter 12. And uh, really, thank you for, for hanging on and uh, joining all these weeks. Um, I feel like I've grown so much just in my understanding of Kohelet and my understanding of life just from learning with you guys, just from this experience. And thank you for joining me on this uh, very, very cool journey. So you guys can all see my screen, right? Yes. Fantastic. Okay, so let's jump right in. So last chapter, if you remember, we left off with uh, some of Kohelet's ideas again about wisdom and folly. And he gives this proverbial idea. Wisdom is more valuable than weapons of war. But a single error destroys much of value. So we're going to see him expound right now uh, on that idea. So let's see what he says. This is a beautiful uh, a pedic where he gives a lot of proverbial wis- wisdom, similar to uh, Sefer Mishleh. Dead flies turn the perfumer's ointment fetid and putrid. So a little folly outweighs massive wisdom, right? So what does that mean to you guys? What do you think when you read that, that a little bit of folly could outweigh massive amount of wisdom? It's like if you make one mistake, everyone's going to remember that one mistake as opposed to all the good things that you've done in life. Certainly. And even when you're, when you're building something, you know, you could do everything right. And then sometimes one small error will ruin the whole enterprise, you know, and it's a very, it's a very unfortunate thing. I remember one of my rabbis in elementary school, he actually quoted this pasuk, I'm remembering now, it was from like seventh grade, and he said, you know, I could give an entire speech, very serious, very important about Torah, whatever it is, and then he says, if somebody makes a smart aleck comment, at the end of that speech, the whole speech goes down the drain, that everything I said could be completely disregarded with one simple joke and he he was a very you know strict kind of guy so that really stuck with me you know like uh you know if if i ever wanted to undermine a rabbi (laughs) all i needed to do was make one smart aleck comment but uh you know on a more serious note yeah it's true you could kind of really uh you have to take things seriously sometimes and you have to you know understand that wisdom is something that you kind of you can't go nine and one you have to go ten and oh you have to make sure to really be on your game. And uh, sometimes in life, one small slip up can have pretty severe consequences. So that he's going he's gonna to give a lot of that kind of idea as we progress throughout the chapter. So let's see what else he has to say. A wise man's mind tends toward the right hand, a fool's toward the left. So we know that uh, in the ancient world, of course, they believe that the right hand represents. Oh, sorry, I think I'm uh, being a little cut out here. You guys hear me? Okay, I hear you. My my screen froze for a second. Um, so we know that in the ancient world, the right hand represents efficacy, and the left hand represents clum- clumsiness. So a person that is hacham, he's gonna really do things that are efficacious while a, uh, a fool really is going to do things that are more clumsy. Um, and it's, it's just funny to see all this because throughout the Sefer, Kohelet has been very skeptical of wisdom. He's right. We, we remember that he said things like, what is wisdom even worth? Because it's all folly. 
and it doesn't really lead to lasting happiness or meaning or anything that you could kind of really grasp onto. And if that's the case, then why is he, you know, praising it here? It seems even Kohelet, who thinks that all of his enterprise of trying to run after wisdom, even though that didn't bear as many fruits as he would have wanted, still folly is much more harmful than wisdom. And fools can harm themselves tremendously and they can harm the people around them. So even though wisdom at the end of the day is not really worth so much, still it's better than folly. You know, and it's at least while you're alive, engage in wisdom rather than engaging in folly. So this is what I find very comical. A fool's mind is also wanting when he travels and he lets everybody know he is a fool. Um, you know, and, and it's, it might sound a little bit harsh, but I think we all know people like this. You know, I personally, not to be too self-deprecating, but uh, it's, it, it, it's a pretty common uh, you know, piece of advice that people give me is, Michael, why don't you just shut up a little bit? You know, if you kept your mouth shut, you really would save yourself from a lot of these uh, troubles. And I think they're right, you know, not to speak too much. And the more you speak, it's not a secret that I love to talk. Everybody who knows me knows that about me. Um, But I think that's a really strong piece of wisdom. Like if you have nothing so intelligent to say, maybe keep your mouth shut and don't let everybody know really how foolish you are. And, And I think we all know people like this, that that the more they speak, the more that they reveal something lacking in terms of their wisdom and there's a humility in being more quiet and, and God knows this is something I'm really trying to work on on myself with, with some degrees of success here and there being more Zen, being a little bit more uh, quiet in certain circumstances, leaving more space for other people's uh, voices in a conversation. Any, any thoughts or comments on that? Yeah, actually there's a quote that I heard. It's, it's, it goes, um, imagine you're a piece of white, a blank piece of paper and the more you talk, the more color that paper becomes. Wow. The more colors you put on that paper. And if it gets overwhelmed with color, you don't really have a nice painting, do you? You just have a whole bunch right. of nonsense. Right. And the more people know you, the more they see the painting and who you really are. Yeah. Victor, what do you think about that? I know you're a photographer. Sometimes maybe there, or, you know, there could be too much that you could be doing. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, uh, I had a thought earlier today. It's it's like serious people um, kind of laugh at, at at the comics and the jokesters, and the jokesters kind of laugh at the serious people. And um, I think it's important to be to have a little bit of both. Mm, absolutely, you have you have to be. You have to find that balance. You can't. There's nothing worse than somebody who takes themselves too seriously. Like one of these alpha males walks into a room demanding respect. Nobody respects that guy. You know, even evolutionarily, it's amazing. The alpha male was never just the one with the most testosterone. The alpha male, in, in classically, when we were hunter-gatherers, when we were tribes, was the one who also had empathy. Because if you was the guy with all that testosterone, then a couple of the beta males would just immediately go and attack him at night and they would overpower him. No matter how strong he was, you know, two is better than one. But if he had some empathy, if he had some degree of, you know, comedy rather than all the seriousness, he would actually be the successful alpha male. So we actually selected for that evolutionarily. So I think that's a really brilliant, brilliant point. So let's see Pasuk Dalit. So now at this stage in the, in the chapter, um, we're going to see just in general about what Kohelet's going to say about getting along well in life, some general wisdom similar to uh, Sefer Mishle. Um, you know, and it, because as un, like, like uh, Michael Fox says here, as uncertain, perilous, and frustrating as life can be, it still holds possibilities for prudent and sensible action. So even though Kohelet knows that there's all these pitfalls and everything at the end of the day he thinks is meaningless, it still makes sense in his mind to engage in and adjust yourself to the realities that you're facing. Um, so now just for these uh, next few Pesukim, he's going to deal with the idea of how do you respond to those in power? And we saw that um, in the past couple of chapters as well, just dealing in a wise way 
with somebody that's above you in a hierarchy. So let's see what he has to say. So if the wrath of the Lord flares up against you, don't give up your post. For when wrath abates, grave offenses are pardoned. So he says, don't just simply run away immediately. And just, of course, just to get, pay homage to the Midrash, Rashi says something interesting. He says that this is really talking about Hashem. Of course, this is not the Pshat. But he's saying, even if God is angry at you and he punishes you for your sins, don't, you know, don't immediately get down on yourself that you're a complete Asha. Just remember that you do have redeeming virtues and that you have some righteousness in you um, and your suffering can maybe atone for some of your sins. So I think that's beautiful. I think it's, it's a kind of way of, of thinking about yourself, not in terms of black and white. We're all going to slip up. We're all going to have mistakes. And I think that's a beautiful midrash that she, that, that she brings up. Um, but just more towards the Peshat, it's saying really read the situation. Because we know in chapter 8, what did Kohelet say? He says the exact opposite. He says that one should depart immediately. Get the heck out of there when, some, when the, you have a guy in power because they're so fickle and their, mu- their moods are so mercurial that you need to get out of there. Um, but the point is that he's not really contradicting himself. He's really saying, read the situation well. If you think you have a shot to appease the person when sticking around, then stick around. If you don't, get the heck out of there. Um, and the word marpeh, interestingly, right, really, who knows, what, what is the shodesh of marpeh? Dr. Nasser, what's your, what's your, what's your uh, profession in Hebrew? Right. Okay, that's a good hint. <laughs> You're rafe. You're right. So marpe literally means from that same shodesh of rafa, like Rafael means God heals. That's the name of that angel. So marpe really means something more less. Doesn't it doesn't really mean abate. It means something closer to like soothing ability. So if you can really find a way to soothe the anger of this or pacify this superior it's more you're really towards that idea so uh marpe once he is pacified you'll be forgiven and she says here is an evil i have seen under the sun as great as an error committed by a ruler so let's see what he has to say what is this grave error so word sechel is actually funny because sechel with a samach means the opposite in a way of sechel with a sin. Sechel with a sin means your sechel, use your, your noodle, you use your brain. But sechel with a samach means a folly and foolishness. So folly was placed on lofty heights while rich men sat in low estate. So very interesting thing that, that Kohelet's revealing about his worldview here. Kohelet did not believe in really in the concept of social mobility so much. Uh, maybe in some parts of the book, he, he would a little bit agree more with that, but he reveals here what's called his class bias. He does not assume that the rich are inherently wise, but he does believe that dislocations in the social order are unseemly. They're not really meant to be. It's, it's, there's something wrong about having social mobility. Um, it's actually similar to certain Pesukim from Mishle and other wisdom literature where they, they agree with this. Even Egyptian prophetic complaints talk about rapid shifts in social status being something, a sign of social disorder. So there's a comfort in having the social system the way it is and remaining that way. Um, and a lot of social conservatism in, wisdom, in, in the wisdom literature. So he's revealing a very opposite way of looking at the world as we would today. Today, we think about the American dream. And we're, our, our grandfathers who came to America, my grandpa came to New York in 1910. He was born in 1895, my grandpa, Sam Franco. And, and you know, I'm sure he heard, you know, uh, in New York and in America, the, the roads are paved with gold. And you could go from rags to riches. That's, that's part and parcel of being an American almost. We, we, we wax poetic about that idea of being a person who is able to go from rags to riches, started from the bottom, now we're here. You know, that's what we're all about. And, and in Kohelet's eyes, that's actually not a good thing. 
and that's a sign of social disorder. So that's kind of an old way of looking at the world. So he, he doesn't like the idea that there could be foolish people or really poor people, it seems, in lofty heights while rich men are in low estate. I've seen slaves on horseback. And nobles walking on the ground like slaves. How ironic is this? You know, and he says all this stuff. We are a nation of slaves. Am Yisrael is literally a nation that began as slaves. And we're commanded to love those who are vulnerable because we know what that's like. And here he is, Kohelet, saying, oh, yes, yeah, slaves should know their place. They should stay on the ground and uh, let the nobles ride on the horses. So it's a little bit off-putting, but you know what? That's just the way that uh, they saw the world at the time. Any comments before we move on to the next section? Or questions? Similar to a caste system. Say it again? Yes, similar to a caste system, exactly. That, that they really did not believe so much in social mobility, and, uh, and that's exactly right. You know, that's part of the, uh, the problem with the, with the caste system in ancient India, for sure. Um, so now the next that's section... This is, very, this is a not very Jewish philosophy. Not at all. That's, that's the amazing thing about this book is that it's so subversive in so many ways. It, it introduces so many ideas that are so foreign, we think, to like time. Time is cyclical rather than time as linear. Uh, just to give one small example, so many things, you know, God's uh, um, providence over the world he believes in, but humans' ability to make any real progress is not really there. And fixing the world or noticing evil and faith is protest. He doesn't really express those ideas. And that's the amazing thing is that the Hachamim included this in the canon and because they wanted us to know as thinkers that there's a place for all these thoughts that even Shilama Melech, you know, air quotes around that, if he is the writer, um, which of course we, I don't necessarily think he was, but either way, if even Shilama Melech could have had these thoughts, then it's okay for me to have those thoughts as well. Um, oh, and by the way, I should mention um, that this class is, uh, is for the, in the memory of Doret Batmazal. Uh, thank you, Doret Dayan, for, for, uh, for telling me that earlier, really. Um, well, it's Margalit, not Mazal. Margalit, sorry. D uh, Doret Bat Margalit. Yes, Doret, Doret Bat Margalit. Sorry about that. Um, so, so now we're going to move on to the next section. Um, which is going to be from Pesukim 8 through 11. So let's see what we have here. Hofer gumatz boyipol. He who digs a pit will fall into it. He who breaches a stone. Uh, he who breaches a stone fence will be bitten by a snake. So now we're going to see some of these Pesukim are really very much proverbial in a sense like Proverbs, like Sefer Mishleh. And he's giving us general wisdom about how to get by in the world. And like we said earlier, even though he's pessimistic about what human efforts can do, um, he does not tell us to give up. That's the, the amazing thing. You'll speak to nihilists today who tell you, well, it doesn't really matter what you do. And he'll say the same thing, but he will not tell you to just give up and throw on the towel. You still got to make your way through life. Don't just commit suicide. Don't do that. You know, make your way through the murky territory, um, figure out, you know, how to navigate this world. And now he's going to give you some practical advice. So he's saying here, you know, and this is a variant of a popular uh, sayings that we see in, in uh, Mishle, in Tehillim, and Ben Sirah, that really all these Pesukim are trying to say, what goes around comes around. A person's deeds will rebound upon him. What you do in this world will have consequences. And that's a very important idea. You know, you don't expect to live life in a way where, your actions don't follow up on you. And the amazing thing is that God or the universe, whatever you want to call it, will keep on bringing these same things back into your purview over and over until you finally learn that lesson and correct that, that thing. And we all know have our own personal experiences with that where we'll experience the same difficulty or the same challenge in different forms in, this, in different contexts, but really it's the same underlying thing. So for me, it could very often be about self-confidence. You know, if I'm playing tennis, if I'm studying for a test, if I'm dealing with my friends, let me make sure I'm not, you know, having too little self-confidence. And that's something I worked on early in my life. And it's something that'll appear in different contexts or taking risks that'll appear, you know, in different areas as well. So that's something 
you can do your own hashbon nefesh for. But that's the way I see a lot of this is that, you know, your actions or lack thereof will have consequences and it's up to you to notice what those might be. Um, so, you know, the way that Kohelet is, is giving us this uh, Pasuk 8, interestingly, is a little bit different than the other books in the, in the Tanakh. So, for example, in Tehillim, there's a Pasuk, his mischief will recoil upon his own head, his lawlessness will come down upon his skull. So that's an idea from Tehillim that, yeah, it's, you're going to have a moral consequence to your actions. But Kohelet is not really giving it a moral tinge. He's not trying to prove that justice ultimately prevails because he doesn't believe that. He doesn't really believe that there is a, a justice per se. Maybe he does believe that God has his justice. But in this world as it is, he doesn't really see that so much. And it's not about that. It's more about practically they're going to have unintended consequences sometimes of your actions. So just be mindful of what your actions are. So let's see, he's going to give more examples. Oh, and by the way, it's interesting, you know, the idea here of a snake um, in Israel, uh, they have 20 different uh, species of poisonous snakes. I thought that was just really cool, really cool fact, you know, so a very practical piece of wisdom here from Kohelet. Masiyah avanim ye'atsev bahem. He who quarries stones will be hurt by them. He who splits wood will be harmed by it. So what does he mean by that? It seems that if you're not mindful of what you're doing while you're doing these dangerous activities, you can really be hurt. So let's see, he's going to expand on that. If the axe has become dull and he has not wetted the edge, not sharpened it, he must exert more strength. Thus, the advantage of a skill depends on the exercise of prudence. So what he seems to be expressing here is the idea of having forethought. Plan in advance to the extent that you can before you go into doing something. So Dr. Nasser, if you're going to, if you're going to start doing a surgery that you've never done before, I'm sure you're going to be you know, planning in advance every step of the way. You have to know, first, I got to do this, then I got to do that, then I got to do that. And what if this happens, you know? Right. Yeah. Agreed. I think that's, uh, of course, you know, when you're dealing with the human body, but also I, I guess when you're dealing with any kind of hazardous situation, like uh, working with your hands, um, you know, that's really important to have a plan and to have, you know, uh, anticipated certain possible outcomes. Um, you know, even like my friend uh, gives me advice, but when I'm working out, how do you work out? What's the proper form? Figure it out in advance, the best way to do something. So you get the most bang for your buck. It could really come out in many different ways in life. So really, it's, it's a very uh, important idea to, to, to bring into our daily lives is don't plan ahead too much. We tend to do that in our daily lives. We tend to worry unnecessarily. But if you can sit down and allocate 10 minutes to really, you know, dedicated time of how am I going to do X, Y, or Z specifically, it can really bear good fruits because you can see that it'll play out in a certain way and you'll be prepared better for that. So let's see Pasuk 11, the last Pasuk of this, of this section. And I think, listen to the beautiful phonetics uh, or the phonics of this Pasuk. I think it sounds so nice and rolls right off the tongue. If the snake bites because no spell was uttered, no advantage is gained by the trained charmer. So listen to that word. Yeshoch hanahash. So it all sounds shach and hash. You hear that, that, that sound of like whispering to the snake or charming that snake. It's reflected in the sounds of the Pasuk itself. I, I thought that's really cool. Um, and the, the letters are repeating. And that, that rhymes also. Hash and hash rhymes and on and on rhymes. So it's a beautiful uh, rhyme and po- a poetic device that he's using there. But basically, uh, in those days, they believed that a snake charmer was a type of wisdom that you could have. It was a real art form to, to charm a snake. When I was in Morocco, I saw it firsthand, the way that they would be snake charmers was a really cool thing. Uh, amazing to see the, the dancing monkeys and the snake charmers when I was in, uh, highly recommend going to Morocco if you guys have uh, get, ever get a chance to go there. Um, but basically what this is saying is you have to have a timely application of wisdom. Wisdom is not just something you can throw out there. 
It's something to do at the right time. Like we saw in chapter three, you got to do it when it's called for. And if the, if the snake charmer didn't do his charm work at the right time, the snake's going to bite him. And then what, what's all his skill worth? So sometimes we see that in our own lives, like, you know, you were so well prepared for something, but you didn't quite fulfill your potential because you didn't employ that wisdom at the proper time. So I think that's a really interesting idea. Any thoughts on that? Anybody have examples from their lives where they felt that way? I know for me personally, and it'll, it'll happen sometimes, you know, when I'm, uh, when I'm taking a test, you know, if I get a question wrong and it's like, ah, you know, I, I prepared so much for that concept, but I wasn't mindful enough of that detail. And therefore I wasn't able to employ the wisdom that I wanted to employ. And it's a very frustrating thing. So you learn for the next time, like, okay, let me make sure the next time I see this detail, I'm reminded of this piece of wisdom that I already know about that topic. Um, and it, just to, uh, one word about, about rhyming. Um, there's a beautiful uh, a poem by, uh, I believe it's Ibn Ezra. I think maybe Abraham Ibn Ezra, or more, I think there's our Rabbi Moshe Ibn Ezra. He says, which we know is a play on the Pasuk. Don't plow, it says in the Torah. You're not allowed to plow with a short and a hamor at the same time, two different animals. It's not nice to the animals. So he's saying, don't only make a, a, a rhyme with short and hamor. All you get there is the odd part. Bring the short, bring the ox to a straight land. And you hear that it's, it's better than just odd and odd. Now you have short and short, short, let me short. Then there you get amor and amor. So it's just amazing how he worked that out so brilliantly. There's different levels of, of rhyming. And here we see Kohelet hash and hash and on and on different uh, ways of rhyming. And it was a very interesting and, uh, you know, it was a real art form, at, uh, in the, especially in the ancient world. Um, okay, so now we can move on to the next section. The next section is going to be talking about speech, wise and foolish. So we're going to see more about uh, just the, the concept that we brought up earlier in the, in the chapter about speech. Um, so let's see. A wise man's talk brings him favor, but a fool's lips are his undoing, right? So we all know the truth of that, that, you know, when a person speaks wisely, like Yosef HaSadiq, when he spoke to Paro, he became Mishnah Melech because of that. But a fool, when somebody speaks foolishly, it becomes his undoing. Um, and you know, it's, uh, it's, it's a tragedy sometimes that the things that people say really do, do, um, kind of derail all of their plans and whatever position they might've had could be gotten rid of overnight like that. Um, his talk begins as silliness and ends as disastrous madness, right? So we don't even realize sometimes the, the end, end consequences, the butterfly effect that our speech can have. And we, we've all heard those speeches about Lashon Hara, but even uh, uh, without the moral implications of it, just something foolish that you're speaking. Uh, and notice, by the way, that he's not talking about Lashon Hara. It's not, there's not so much morality here that he cares about. It's more just about just practical wisdom he's trying to give us. Um, and, you know, building off of chapter three, there's a time for speaking and a time for silence. Um, and uh, uh, a fool does not know the time for silence. Also, I feel like something that's weird here is that like it talks about the wise man's speech and like a fool's speech, but it doesn't really talk about the fact that like a wise man can say something foolish too, or a fool can say something wise. You know, just because someone is a wise person doesn't necessarily mean that everything they say is, you know, a wise statement. I so love that. It's interesting that like, it's his speech in general that brings him favor, like regardless of whether or not it's actually wise speech. It's just based on the fact that he's a wise man. It's kind of like just a, an assumption that he- Absolutely. Be. Absolutely. It's more about the speech itself than the stature of the person, you know? Agreed, 100%. And, and, and you know, we, I love that idea of separating the, the person from the speech itself. I think that's a very important distinction, 100%. Um, great. Great. Uh, so Pasuk 14, 
לא ידע האדם מה שיהיה, ואשר יהיה מאחריו, מי יגיד לו? So we heard, we heard this concept earlier in the Sefer. Yet the fool talks and talks. A man cannot know what will happen. We've seen that. And because you don't know what's going to happen, who can tell him what the future holds? So we, we saw Kohela lamenting that and saying that what is wisdom at the end of the day? Because you never can really predict the future. There's too many factors out of your control. So therefore, wisdom is meaningless. Now he's saying that same concept that because you don't know the future, it doesn't make sense to speak so much. What are you speaking about? You have no way of knowing what's coming next. So why do you keep talking and talking? It's just for naught. I think, uh, you know, that's something definitely that'll humble us, you know, realizing how little we really do know. And sometimes we hear people speaking from such a position of authority and, and there's nothing that irks us more when that person really does not know what they're talking about. You know, sometimes you have people who are speaking way above their pay grade and speaking with so much you know, confidence about a topic that they really don't know about. And, and you want to talk about a topic that people love to do this with? Politics. Oh, my God. Politics, all of a sudden, you get to election season and everybody is an expert because they watch CNN or Fox News or whatever it is. Maybe let's keep, you know, let's be a little quieter about these things in general because nobody really knows that much, to be honest. I don't care how, you know, I guess there are some people who know more than others, but from what I've heard and from what I've seen, there's plenty of people who just love to speak as though they are experts. And uh, I love I love that concept of, listen, maybe a little more humility, a little more silence. You kind of stole the words from my mouth. I was going to ask, you know, what would Kohala think about these 24-hour uh, news channels or, uh, or about cancel culture? Oh, my God. Yeah, it's, I, I don't think he would. I think he would be the first to, uh, to call them sechalim and foolish people chasing after wind. That's for sure. <laughs> I have a question. Sure. Is it saying that a fool person is someone who just talks and talks? Or could a because I feel like a wise person could talk and talk. And like, Great question. Yeah, I think um, I think he, he's saying that you find very often that fools talk and talk. I don't think it has. It's a rule that, you know, 100 percent. And yeah, there are very wise people who do talk and talk. And if you going if you listen to a TED talk, we're happy about that. I don't think he's talking about them. I think he's talking about people who, you know, some guy that you uh, that you didn't mean to bump into and you bump it into the guy and he doesn't stop, you know, uh, mouthing off to you about X, Y, or Z and he really has no clue about what he's talking about. Michael uh, and, uh, you know, everyone, I, I think, you know, he, I, I think we're missing something or, or just the way you guys are understanding it is a little different than how I would understand it. He's not saying like, a wise person does this and, you know, describing it. What he's saying is because someone does this, he's wise uh, because someone does this, he's a fool. You know what I mean? Like you're, you're misunderstanding it as in like, you think, Oh, okay. He says, there's a wise person. Here's a fool. And this is what they do. That's not really the way he's, he's describing it. He's saying it's all about the action. And that's what, how he's classifying them by wise and fool. They're not wise and fool mm -hmm. before the action. The action is what begets the classification here, even though the way the phrasing is backwards. But, you know, when he says a fool talks on and on and says stupid things. He's saying you're a fool because you're saying the stupid uh, things, you not, become a fool. not the other way around. Yes, you, you, you earn the designation through the action. I like that. I actually think you're right. I think you're, that's more shot for sure. And you could be wise one day and a fool the next day. Ah, uh, yes. And that, you know, to answer, I think it was Bella who was asking. I think that answers your question. That it's not necessarily, you know, uh, you know, saying that, oh, there's a wise person versus a foolish person. It's kind of a part of all of us, you know, that you could be that on different days. And, and I like that a lot. I don't think I think that's that's also to, to you know, Lauren's point, you know, that that it's it's less labeling. It's, it's more of a way of separating the, the speaker from the, the uh, that which is spoken. And we could we could each wear these different hats on different days and we notice if we felt wise that day or if we felt like a fool that day. And it often has a lot to do with uh, the way we spoke. I think that's great points all around. Thank you, doc. That really ties in a lot of comments. Great. Um, yeah, and, and like we said earlier, it's just because of the humility of this pasuk, there's so much we don't know about the future, best to just keep silent. You know, and I think that's great. Amalakesilim tiyagainu. 
a fool's exertions tire him out, for he doesn't know how to get to a town. Right? So even the simple thing of getting to a town, everybody knows how to get to town when they're walking around that area, but the fool doesn't know. And he's tired out from that. And that's, it's really just uh, kind of painting more of a picture and like an afterthought on the comments by Kohelet on the idea of what a foolish person is like. Um, so he's trying to just describe that a little bit more intimately for us. Um, so now the next set of Pesukim till the end of the chapter is going to be describing the ruling class or the aristocracy. So let's see what he says. Ilach Eretz Shemalkech Naar Vesaraich Baboker Yochelu. Alas for you, O land whose king is a lackey and whose ministers dine in the morning. Right? So he's saying, this is what he thinks of, and again, he's going to be, you know, reiterating his opinion about uh, different people, types of people being in different positions of power. So he's saying, if you have, uh, if you're a, a town or a province, and the person ruling over you is a na'ar and is just a lad, you know, you know that's, that's not too good for you. And what do they do? What, are, what do those fools do who are ruled over by somebody who's unworthy and degenerate? Or the way that Michael uh, Fox puts it, and he translates na'ar more as like a slave building off of the rest of the context. So if you have a slave ruling, what do they do? They start their feast in the morning. And they just continue feasting all day. And ironically, you know, that's funny hearing that from Kohelet. Doesn't, doesn't Kohelet love that idea of feasting? Well, here he's tempering it a little bit. He's saying, you know, you, know, you should enjoy food and drink. He does agree with that, but in the right time. And we're, we're going to see how he thinks it should be done. So let's continue. Ashrech Eretz. So as opposed to Ilach Eretz, you know, which is like bad thing. Here's good thing. That your king is a master, not a slave. As opposed to the Na'ar, right? Which as opposed to Ben Horim is a Na'ar, which seems to be the opposite of freedom is slavery. O land whose king is a master and whose ministers dine at the proper time with restraint, not with guzzling. So that's a beautiful concept that there's a time and place for everything like we saw in chapter three. So here it's playing itself out. The wise older king knows how to handle his government that way. And he knows how to handle this idea of feasting. Feasting is good when done at the right time and when done with restraint, because if you're just doing all out feast every single day, it's going to just be mayhem and it's not even going to be an enjoyable feast. So it's just a couple points here. Um, so just the, the concept of moderation that he's really trying to, uh, to, to hit home here. And I think that's at the center of so much of this book is despite his praising of pleasures, maybe I've been a little bit too hard on him. He doesn't just praise indulgence completely. He, he praises indulgence at the right time with the right person you know, and building something in your life. And I think that's a much nicer way of, of relating to Kohelet as opposed to seeing him as saying, just be a complete nihilist and um, what's the word? Uh, uh, um, and, uh, a hedonist. He's, he's not really saying to be a hedonist. He is a little bit nihilistic, but he's not saying to therefore be a hedonist. He's saying still be temperate in the way that you enjoy your pleasures. Ba'asatayim yimacham mekareh. Through slothfulness or laziness, the ceiling sags. Through lazy hands, the house caves in. So just to give you some context, another archaeological fact like we give about the snakes, this time the roofs, the flat roofs in Israel in ancient times were covered with lime, right? Limestone, which if not maintained by fresh, fresh plastering would crack and allow seepage. So a person who allows their, their plaster to just get, you know, rotten and seep through is not doing their job. They're being too lazy. So make sure you get that house in order. Make sure you get that roof in order. They make a banquet for revelry. Wine makes life merry and money answers every need. 
All right, so the other point, like with the ceilings, like there were some cultures that really did just let like the roofs cave in and the lime would just, you know, completely overhaul the house and they would rebuild the house like on top of it. Wow. Painting their lime. So I feel like it also kind of insults some like other cultures that wouldn't necessarily have so much of a focus on, you know, maintaining their limestone houses. They, you know, they would just kind of like let things fall as they may and then just rebuild and keep rebuilding as opposed to like maintaining the structure they originally built. Exactly. And I think that's almost like a microcosm for the way that he sees a society run by a nod, run by somebody who's not fit to lead. Right. And uh, as opposed to the person who is a master who is fit to lead. So so now I think he's uh, going to continue with that. Let's see what he says about in, in Pasuk 19. They make a banquet for revelry. Wine makes life merry and money answers every need. So he's not really criticizing banquets in general. It is a legitimate activity only when it's done in, in temperance. And wine makes you merry, yes. Um, so he's not, you know, he's not going against the pleasures of wine, but he's saying the wealthy are not condemned for enjoying these pleasures, but rather for failing to do so in the proper time and measure. So he's saying, make sure when you do these things, do them in the right way. Have a banquet in the right time. Enjoy that wine at the right time. And what does he mean here by Hakesafianeta call? He's saying what's really unfair is that the dissolute rich have these resources. The fact that these, the rich people who are not wise, the fact that they have kesef to answer every need doesn't seem so fair in his eyes. That's the way that Michael Fox puts it. Um, and money is what's keeping them occupied and it's evidence of their good fortune. It's, it's just simply keeping them busy. It's, it does, this pasuk to me screams out, you know, an allocation of wealth, not in the right way. Um, and just doing it in a, in a disorganized fashion. Um, and, you know, I think we see that sometimes in our community where we feel like things are getting a little bit over the top in the, in the fact that people are spending maybe a little too much money on a wedding or maybe a little too much money on a car or a house or whatever it is, rather than investing it in, I don't know, who am I to say? I, I'm not one to, to tell any individual, but maybe more investment in education or, spiritual development would be a, a wiser thing than just simply wasting it on these kinds of things. And maybe Kohelet would agree with, you know, spending money on a lot of these pleasures, but again, do it in, a, in the right way. Don't be too excessive about it. And I think that's a beautiful concept. And I also feel like the whole like money answering every need thing, it kind of like represents a very warped perspective on things. Cause like, if you even look at like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, there's so many other needs besides for, you know, what money can buy for you. You know, you need love, you need care from other people. Like there's, you need to take care of yourself also. There, there's just so much more to what you need in life than the like, things you can buy with money. Absolutely. That's exactly it. And, and it's, it's such a sad thing because, you know, so many of my peers, you know, that are in their twenties now, they're talking about starting a, a life and getting a job and, we've become so obsessed with money and, and means and is it lucrative and is it getting me to the next thing and the next thing we, we, we enter this rat race. And uh, I don't know if some of you guys who are older can speak to that, but we enter a rat race that is so unfulfilling and we, we do things that don't give us so much meaning in life. And yes, money is important. Of course it is. You have to support yourself and your family, but if you're doing the job only, only, only for the money, and it really, you don't like what you're doing and you get home and you're just drained and you, you don't feel like you're helping people. You don't feel like you're enjoying yourself in a meaningful way. There's a price to pay. And, you know, you, you might look back however many years later and say, you know, I didn't, I didn't help enough people. I didn't do things that really were going to provide enough meaning for my, for me in my life. And there's a real tragedy in that. And, that's the idea. That's the way I see that almost is people my age. I, I, I want to warn them, like, don't don't just go into something for the money. Find something, you know, really don't give up on finding something that could be at the intersection of something that's meaningful and something that also can be lucrative. 
I think there are things like that. And uh, I'm lucky enough that I'm going to into medicine and I'm hoping that it'll, it'll provide me with both, both of those things. Um, I'll just kind of ex expand on that for a second. Um, uh, th there's been, like you said, like when, when, when the rich or the wealthy kind of pursue money, not, not with meaning, um, I guess it creates a butterfly effect. So it's like, even this morning, I was walking down the street, I saw somebody wearing a t-shirt that said, eat the rich, you know? So you're gonna end up causing uh, animosity towards yourself. Yes, that's exactly right. But also the money can be meaningful in and of itself based on the purpose that you designate for it in advance. You know, if you're, you know, focused on making money, not just because you wanna make money, but maybe because you wanna make sure you can give your kids a good education or something like that. That's not necessarily the worst thing in the world. And you know, it might be, that might be maybe okay if you have maybe a job that's almost as fulfilling as you want. And then you can find an outlet outside of your job that's more fulfilling. Like, I feel like it's not always the best advice to just say, oh, you should only do something that makes you happy because there is the practicality involved. And if you, you know, want to create a life for yourself, you do need that other part of it. Absolutely. I, I tend to, I tend to get too romantic about this topic, you know, and uh, I, I agree with you. I think there is so much room for being practical and find, you know, you know, the money itself, you're right. If you, if you have an inspiration uh, for, for your family or whatever it is, I agree. I don't, it doesn't have to necessarily be about the work itself, but I think it's like you're saying, it could be a mindset that you bring to the work that makes it more meaningful. Just so this, this is a rich man's book, right? I mean, let's, that's, that's his perspective. In other words, it, which, which we can relate to because a lot of us, you know, don't have to work that hard uh, or, or some of us yeah. anyway, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it completely neglects the people that work out of necessity to put food on the table and, you know, just get, get the essentials going. Obviously they don't get to choose, you know, a meaningful career. Uh, but yes, but if you think about it from, you know, this is really from a spoiled rich type of perspective, privilege. Uh, you know, it's, it's a little bit, that, that's where you're getting the lesson. And that's really, you know, that's when you have the choice is you have the choice when, you know, you're kind of privileged and you can choose a career and everything and whatever you do, you know, you're going to have enough. So it's not really so much of a concern. You're just making choices. It's not necessity exactly. at that point. Exactly. I'm definitely, this is, you're right. My advice is definitely not to somebody living in an inner city who just has to make ends meet a hundred percent that, you know, I, I, of course he just has to get by. He has to survive. We, like you're saying, we have the luxury of deciding between something more lucrative, less lucrative, but we're always going to be able hopefully to live, make ends meet. Um, and, you know, we, we have that luxury of trying to find something that, that will be more fulfilling for us in our lives for sure. And the whole luxury of philosophy is, is the same thing. Yeah. No one's doing this philosophy if there's just trying to make, no one's thinking about these things if their whole life is just consumed with not starving to death. You know, I mean, this is, this is a different kind of thought process. Yeah, having leisure time. I remember learning even in American history when, when uh, American standard of living went up, we had more time for intellectualism and philosophizing and all that stuff. And it's such a tremendous... Uh, you know, privilege to be able to sit and engage in wisdom like Kohelet's doing, like we're doing. There's so many people who are working three jobs and don't have time to reflect on this stuff. So we, sh we really should uh, reflect on the privilege of just being able to sit here on a Tuesday night and do this, you know, and, and how fortunate are we? And, um, you know, it makes you also think about what about all those things that we, that some of us do or some people that we know, that are just really seeming like, like a waste of time, like, you know, gambling or whatever it may be, you're using your leisure time, not for anything really productive. And I'm not saying you have to be productive all the time, but maybe we could add more of this spirit of, yeah, we have this leisure time. Let's develop ourselves more spiritually, intellectually, uh, because we have that privilege for sure. I think when you, when you realize that, that privilege com in comparison with, with poor people, it makes you want even more to use that time wisely, 100%. I 
I love this pasuk. Don't revile a king, even among your intimates. And by the way, that word, um, might not, it could be your intimate friends, like your madaim, could be those who know about your inner thoughts, or it could literally be your inner thoughts. Even in your thoughts themselves, don't even think about cursing somebody in power like a king. And even, and don't revile a rich man, even in your bedchamber. Why not? For a bird of the air may carry the utterance and a winged creature may report the word. All right, so it's like a little birdie told me or I heard through the grapevine or some of the world, the walls have ears. That's really the, 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 the phrase that most connects in modern parlance to this pasuk. The walls have ears. Be careful, you know, you can never be too careful about the way you speak about those in power, those rich people. And it's a very practical piece of wisdom. You know, you can imagine people in those days, hazaton, they must have been slaves or whatever, living under real oppression. And if they complained about somebody or something and they got back to the person in power, it might even mean death for them. You know, so this is a really important piece of wisdom. As much as you're suffering, be careful about when and where you express your, your misgivings about that person or situation because it really might come back to bite you. Um, yeah, and, and don't even think about it because you might let those thoughts slip out at the wrong time. And obviously, you can't really control so many of your thoughts. They just pop up. But uh, be careful with the way that you express a lot of those thoughts. Um, and the, the, this is, you know, a really humorous thing because let me ask you, this is a very meta question. What has Kohelet just been doing this whole chapter? He's just been insulting those in power. He's just been insulting the Na'ar, who is a king. And, you know, maybe he's even talking about somebody in his day who, is, who he believes is not fit to lead. Or the Avadim, the slaves that are riding on, on these horses, it seems as though maybe he's talking about specific people. And the great dry humor of this is almost like self-reflective on his part is, oh, yeah, this is what I just did. Don't do what I just did. Don't write badly about or speak badly about people in power because it might just come to bite you. Um, so, so that's just a very funny, uh, ironic thing here at the end. Um, but yeah, I think just as an overall point, be smart about the way that you speak, be smart about the way that you think, um, and, you know, use prudence when, when, when speaking about others, sometimes it's necessary to speak about others, really be, be careful because you don't want to be caught speaking about somebody and they overheard or, you know, it got back to them and that's never a good situation. Um, thank you guys for joining. Any, any questions or comments before we uh, sign off? I have one. Um, sure. On the last thing. So please. like, I love the first half of it, but then the second half, I, I'm just not such a fan. Cause I feel like it should be, you know, don't revile a king even among your intimates because it's wrong to, you know, it, it shouldn't just be about others. Like, I feel like that's the second level of it. Like the first level should be, okay, this is the wrong thing to do. Now, if you can't convince someone that that's the wrong thing to do, then say, oh, someone might hear you. You might want to, you know, watch. So I'll tell you why I don't agree. I think, you know, of course the Torah does say, uh, or don't curse the judges, Elohim, and that pasuk means judges. And nasi a leader in your nation do not curse lotaor. I agree with that, but I think I'm thinking of this like from the perspective of a servant or a slave who really is just so unhappy because the king is somebody that is an evil person. They commit acts of oppression, and I I don't think it's wrong to have negative opinions of of that person. You know, I don't think that's a bad thing. And I don't think it's a bad thing to express that to your wife in your bedroom. Like, you know what the king just did? He took away my salary for the year because I sneezed during the the lecture. You know, to me, this is very practical, uh, practical advice. But in that, you're also assuming that the king is actually committing evil acts or is an evil person. Whereas a lot of the time, a public figure is just very easy to revile in general, regardless of if they're doing anything wrong in the first place or if they're actually a bad person. It's just because of the fact that they're in the limelight that makes it so easy to 
kind of hate on them. Sorry, I missed the first part of what you said. Sorry, say it one more time. I said, um, you're kind of assuming that the king or the rich man is doing something evil or is an evil person. But a lot of the time, just a public figure in general is someone that's easy to hate. Yes, so I agree. So it doesn't necessarily need to be an evil king. So it makes sense. You're, I like how, it, like, it makes sense to me when, you know, the king is evil, then yeah, okay, be careful with what you're saying, because that can carry through and you'll get hurt for from that. But if the king isn't evil, and it's just kind of like a gossip kind of thing, you know, like, you know, page five gossip type thing, or page six, I don't even know which page, but yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, a tablet or something, <laughs> like, you know, something like that, then you know, it's not, it's not the same situation. Then it's yes. just, you have to be mindful. Of you don't, you don't like the lack of nuance in, in the Pesukim, but it's but, more of a, a general practical wisdom of it. And I do appreciate it for its practical right. wisdom, despite the lack of nuance that you're pointing out. But yes, I, I do agree that, that, you know, there is something left to be desired for sure. I understand what you're saying, uh, but he's consistent with this whole book here. He is not giving moral guidance in this uh, in this book. I mean, it's clear. He's just kind of saying, you know, what you know. He's giving you. It's like uh, it's like in the Torah. It says you should honor your parents, you know, to lengthen your days or something like that. It's more. He's giving you very tangible, practical guidelines. It may have a moral dimension to it, and it does. But he's not telling you to do it for the sake of the moral uh, dimension. Like for here, I'm reading this and I'm thinking. You know, so you can make fun of a poor person, no problem. But uh, the king and, and the rich man that you have to be. In other words, that's not good moral advice. You know, all people should be respected and you shouldn't be making fun of anyone, you know, and poking fun at people. It's not nice. I mean, everyone, you know, I mean, obviously that's what I'm thinking. I'm like, you know, this is kind of like half half advice. This is bad advice from a moral perspective. Yes, exactly. Uh, one of the things I appreciate about the book is that he's not sanctimonious. He's not moralistic. You know, if you ever read The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt, and of course that's talking about politics as well, the thing that humans love to do is feel self-righteous. We love to say, oh, this is the right thing to do and I feel good about it and I'm going to tell everybody how good I feel because I only eat non-GMO, good for the environment, organic things, and it's good for the bees and it's good for the, the, the birds and whatever it is. We love to pride ourselves on things. And there's, a, there's such a distaste that, we're, that some of us are developing for that kind of a thing. And for me, I just appreciate Kohelet so much because he doesn't claim to be this beacon of morality. That's not what he's about. He's just about giving you practical wisdom. And I do appreciate him for that. And I do, of course, I do believe in morality. And I, be, I loved Rabbi Sachs's book, Morality. But I think there's also a place for this, just practical wisdom without the sanctimony. I'm not, I'm not saying, God forbid, that Rabbi Sachs is being sanctimonious, but I think a lot of people in society today, and, and forgive me for saying this, but I see it more on the left than I do on the right. And, and I think it is also on the right for sure. But I think the left, you know, a lot of these, uh, you know, up and coming progressives love to tell us how woke they are and how great it is that they're so woke and I'm sick of it, you know, and, and just reading Kohelet without the wokeness for me is a breath of fresh air. But of course I am very biased. And if you're listening to the end of this recording in five years from now, you had to get me, I must've been pretty rich and famous by now for you to be listening. So thank you for, uh, for listening to this recording. <laughs> just wanted to throw that out there. You're a comedian, Michael. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I always got to do that. You know, I always have to, uh, insert these little things that'll get me in trouble one day. And I'll be proud if somebody, if somebody really is, is digging for that in my recordings, I'll be so proud because it must mean I'm worth digging for. Do you think that this I love it. Is <laughs> that again, Lauren? Do you think this book is aimed at someone who is, you know, I guess maybe a less moral kind of reader, like someone who is just, you know, solely focused on like these pleasures of society and, He's trying to like ground them a little bit more, but like not the full way. Do you think? I think he meant this for everybody. I think he meant this book to be read by every, any person who could get their hands on it. That's the way I see it. And I think he's just, he doesn't care so much about morality because he doesn't see it as having a payoff. He, he just sees the world as, as haphazard in a certain way. And the best thing you can do is not to hope for being good for whatever's sake. No, be smart. Be wise, 
because that'll get you at least a way of navigating the difficulties and having less suffering and enjoying your pleasures, you know? So I thought that's really interesting. Anything else before we sign off? Thank you, Michael. Thank you so much, guys. It was a real pleasure. Great class and, uh, as always. Thank you thank very you. much. I enjoy it every single week, really the highlight of my week and love seeing you guys. I miss you. I'm in Maine and uh, hopefully I'll see you all soon in, in Brooklyn or Deal or wherever. And I hope you guys are doing well. Thank you. Wait, so what, what class are we going to do once we finish Kohelet? Oh, good question. Wow, I appreciate that question. I have to think about it, man. Eov? I would love to do Eov. That's a great... I, I, I'm i in. Yes, Eov, I'm very down for. I'm, I'm down. down. For I'm 100%. Might as well. <laughs> if you guys will awesome. be there, I'll do Eov with you, 100%. I'll definitely be there. I'm Eov good. is one of my favorite... Uh, Eov, I have to say is probably at the foundation of my belief in so many ways. And, and part of why I love Judaism so much is Sefer Eov. And I can't say that strongly enough. So we have to learn it. Yeah. The end of Sefer Eov, nothing like it. Yeah. So we, we definitely got to discuss more. Thank you so much, guys. I appreciate that. Thank you. All right. Alamak, guys. Good night. Thank you. Good night. Thank you. See you next week.